today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hashtag Toronto Strong, hashtag Hammer Proud. And, uh, you know, it, it almost seems, and, and I certainly don't mean to take away from the tragedy that has happened uh, on Danforth in Toronto, uh, of course, and, and the ensuing investigation and, and memorials and such that are, that are ongoing. Um, but what a beautiful and subtle uh, tribute to Toronto with the use of our Hamilton sign. And uh, in case you haven't seen it, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger tweeted this uh, the other day. Basically, the Hamilton sign uh, lit in white and then the T.O. portion of Hamilton, uh, th- the, uh, the last uh, two letters, uh, I guess third, well, no, not the last two. But anyway, um, the T.O. portion before the N is lit in blue uh, for Greek Town. So just a, a, an amazing, a beautiful tribute. And, and again, I don't want to take away from the tragedy and what has happened on uh, on the Danforth, but you know, considering um, how ironic it is, what it took to get this sign, and 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 what it would cost, and what it would this, and and promoting the city, and and this is nothing about promoting the city. This is just a beautiful, friendly gesture from one city to another, uh, two cities that are hard, tough rivals in sport, but when one is in need, stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, as all world-class cities do. So uh, when I saw this, the uh, it, it, and when you see it, it, sells, it sends chills up your spine. It really, really does. And uh, it, it just, it made me so proud. And, uh, and, and I, I'm hoping that you feel the same. And again, it's just a small token from our city to theirs that... Uh, that we're feeling their pain. And um, and again, I don't want to draw attention, too much attention away from the tragedy itself. Um, but to me, this makes us look like a world-class city. Let's bring in Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. He is with us now. Fred, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. We lost him! <sighs> That's bad timing, isn't it? Was it me? You know, after that beautiful preamble and, uh, you know, that's live radio, my friends. That's what happens. Uh, I'm not sure. Luke says it was not my fat fingers that did the, uh, the disconnecting. But anyway, uh, if you have not seen this, uh, by all means, take a peek at it. Uh, I'm sure you'll see it on the city's website and uh, as well on uh, Mayor Fred's Twitter account and such. And go down and, and take a peek at it because it really is... Uh, something to see, and it, it certainly does make us proud. Do we have the mayor with us? All right, we got him. Let's try again. Mayor Fred, are you there? I am, yes. I'm, not, you. I'm not sure if that was my fault or what happened. I, I might have fat fingers here. You're the first call of the day. I'm, I'm just not in the yeah. groove yet. Anyway, uh, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't touch a thing. It just went <laughs> that's all of a that's so exactly I, what I said to my producer. I didn't touch a thing. Honest, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Mayor yeah. Fred, when I saw this, uh, you know, it just honestly sent chills up my spine. And uh, how many conversations we've had about this, I'm not sure. But, but this was absolutely a beautiful, subtle tribute to uh, what that city is going through. And, and I just want to know what the process is. How do you, is there a sign guy? Where, where do these great ideas come up with? And I know we're not the first to do it, but but still. No, you know what? There is a, there is a sign guy. So so a lot of this was actually uh, you know programmed by the original designer of the sign, Mike Kukuska, and the Hamilton Scenic uh, did a fantastic job of building the sign and, and building in 
uh, you know, flexibility in terms of how you light it up. And so uh, this, this is uh, a lot of this has been pre-programmed. Um, now this one was special, though. Uh, you know, this one had to be done individually because it was a you know different kind of event. Uh, but it really is an opportunity for us to kind of send the message to Toronto that we're uh, we're in solidarity with them. For me, you know, this this whole gunplay issue, and uh, we've had those issues in Hamilton, and uh, I've had concern about uh, you know the, the availability of guns. Um, it, it's also an opportunity for us to say to them that we're uh, we're going to work with you, uh, Toronto, to uh, work with our provincial and federal partners to see if we can do more on you know getting some of these legal and illegal guns off the uh, off the streets. I mean, the availability of them uh, is an issue. Um, I don't know anybody. No one can tell me that there's a reason for someone to have a gun in the city of Hamilton, other than if you're a police officer or you have a you know a license to hunt. Uh, beyond that, I, I just don't understand why anyone would have to have to have a gun, and, and that availability uh, causes things like the tragedy that we see in uh, in Toronto. So, I'm uh, hoping that I'm gonna. I have reached out to Mayor Tory, and uh, uh, the sign was one way of letting Toronto know that uh, we feel their pain, and uh, we're going to work with them to uh, in solidarity to see if we can uh, make better progress on the gun control issue. How concerned are you, Mayor, when you see this sort of thing happen just down the QEW? You know it's not a far drive. Uh, I mean, how long before something like this happens here? It has to be top of mind. Um, how do you deal with that as a mayor and, and, and talking to mayors of other cities? Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole range of issues that come into this, uh, Scott. Uh, you know, mental health and mental health uh, funding and uh, support for mental health. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the police services has developed a navigator program, which is really dealing with uh, folks that either have mental health issues and, and, and a criminal background and helping them through uh, getting to a better place in their, in their lives. And uh, we have uh, police officers identified to do that. We have COAST which is, uh, you know, part of the police services that actually helps folks that are having a mental health crisis rather than, uh, you know, locking them up and uh, putting them in uh, handcuffs. They, uh, they get them the proper treatment they need uh, to, to, to deal with the issues that they're facing. I mean, there's a whole range of issues that are happening currently to try and help people with uh, challenges. Uh, and at the same time, we've had uh, gun amnesties to try and uh, encourage people to bring, uh, you know, unwanted or unnecessary uh, guns to the police and uh, and the ammunition to go with it, so that we can take a lot of these guns off the street. Um, and all, there, there's a multitude of issues that keep happening in the, uh, surrounding this. We did have uh, a couple of years ago, or about a year ago, we had some gunplay on the streets uh, of Hamilton, uh, yep. two, two individuals firing at one another. Uh, fortunately, no one was uh, no one was hurt. Uh, you know, bullet holes were found in uh, parts of buildings, and you know, an innocent bystander could have been in the way of all of that, and we could have had the similar kind of tragedy here. And so, um, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm just shocked that uh, that uh, folks uh, would would take an opportunity to take other people's lives, uh, no matter what their crisis is. But obviously, their mental health is not good, and uh, you know, strange things can happen. So there's a whole range of issues we need to deal with, and uh, and mental health certainly it, it appears in this case is uh, is something that has been an issue for this individual in Toronto for quite some time, and was even getting help and assistance and treatment, and uh, and still uh, you know managed to uh, to take not only uh, other people's lives and injure a whole bunch of people, but uh, obviously lose his life in the process. So. Uh, I don't know what the ultimate answer is, but uh, there are many steps that we can take and continue to push on 
to ensure that we uh, we provide the kind of supports that uh, are necessary for people that are in crisis. Uh, Toronto was dealing with gun issues uh, before this happened. It, it was chatter, Mayor Tory uh, talking to, to council and, and what they can do and such. Uh, then after this event, we see a meeting with John Tory, Doug Ford, Bill Blair. Anything that can come out of those as a municipality, what can we do? Well, you know, we're, we're not in charge of the kind of the criminal act. Uh, so some of the things that I talked about in terms of the supports for mental health crisis and uh, the Coast Program, the Navigator Program, uh, gun amnesties, I, I think those are steps that we can take. But we're not in charge of uh, criminal criminal law. We're not in charge of gun control. Uh, those, are, those are predominantly federal issues and, uh, you know, may slip into provincial issues as well. Uh, we need everyone to come together and and talk about how can we uh, make improvements so that uh, these kinds of things do not happen on our streets going forward. Um, uh, I don't have an easy answer, uh, but but not doing anything is not the right answer at all. I've reached out to uh, Mayor Tory to uh, to let him know that I fully support uh, the effort that uh, that he's taking to. Uh, reach out to the federal uh, federal authorities, and uh, I'm going to be with him to do that. And uh, we'll uh, take it to uh, our our big city mayor's caucus. And I know that these these issues happen, you know, across the country. It's not endemic to Toronto. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's happening in Vancouver and Winnipeg, and uh, you know, all kinds uh, Edmonton. And so, uh, you know, let's work together as uh, kind of big city mayors across the country to impress upon the federal government that uh, more gun control is better. Uh, less gun, gun control is not. What about uh, intelligence gathering and the role of community policing in all of this? How do we balance gathering the information we can and uh, obviously civil rights here? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's and one of the challenges that we face. But, uh, you know, the programs like the Navigator program really tries to address that, where you have, uh, you know, intelligence gathering by, you know, folks that are either having mental challenges and, and, and they have somewhere to go to, some authority to go to, to say, here's what this person is experiencing. Uh, you know, what is it, police, that you can do to help uh, this person through? And then, and then stay with it. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the occasional interaction doesn't provide the kind of support that uh, an in- individual might need if they're having a mental health crisis. They need a consistent uh, level of support from individuals that are prepared to, uh, to stick with it with them. And uh, that kind of program is available through our Hamilton Police Service. So that's, that's heartening. And I know there's other mental health services that are uh, uh, available. Uh, we have uh, much more... Uh, We've been much better at addressing the stigma around mental health, and certainly uh, your own Ted Michaels uh, has been a champion for uh, highlighting mental health issues and making sure that people don't see it as a, as a um, something that uh, they should should ignore, but something that they should get treatment for. It's a disease like any other, and so uh, there's a lot of positive steps happening out there that can be helpful. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know how we ultimately completely prevent the the uh, the way uh, the availability of guns and and someone in a mental health crisis that you know takes it upon, takes it upon himself to uh, pick up that gun and do something uh, something tragic like uh, what happened in Toronto I thought those are uh, you know maybe maybe it's totally impossible to eradicate but we have to take steps to at least put preventative measures in so that it, it's not easy to do 
and uh, guns are just far too readily available, and I, I and we've got to clamp down on that somehow. Uh, gun control always becomes a uh, a debate when issues like this happen, and as you mentioned, this is something largely that needs to be dealt with on the federal level. That being said, Toronto talked about banning the sale of guns and the sale of ammo within city limits. Can you do that? Can municipalities do that? Apparently not. So I, I went through that uh, the last time we uh, we had this uh, this issue before us, and uh, I explored those opportunities and. That is not uh, not in our purview uh, because it's uh, it's it's guns are regulated by the federal federal government. So uh, we cannot ban the sale of uh, the, uh, the guns. I mean, we cannot uh, we cannot register guns on our own. That's a federal authority as well. And so uh, what we need to do is encourage those federal authorities to uh, to find a better way of managing the uh, the the number of guns that are out there. And I'm I'm really not trying to prohibit. You know, folks that uh, have guns to hunt. Uh, I, I think there's there's ways of dealing with that that uh, you know other countries have done, where you know gun gun owners that uh, want to hunt with a gun are properly licensed, and then they keep their gun in a lockup uh, outside of the house somewhere. Uh, you know, and there could be uh, you know a facility uh, available for that. Uh, and then when they go to hunt, they can go and gather up that gun and do what they need to do, and then bring it back into a lockup. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know. The only people, in my view, that need to have guns are, are police officers and security people, uh, OPP, and uh, you know those folks that uh, obviously need that to uh, to enforce the law. Beyond that, I see no reason for anyone to have a gun, and we should do everything humanly possible to get them off the street. How big a problem is this in Hamilton? Uh, how, both with yourself and police, concerned about this infiltrating into Hamilton? You mentioned the one incident uh, that happened mm-hmm. earlier. Luckily, no one was hurt. Do we have it under control? Are we one step away? How do you gauge this? Well, I mean, it's it's under control until something happens, I guess. Yeah, the sad, yeah. sad reality. Um, you know, there are there are gangs uh, in in the city of Hamilton. Uh, you know, well well known to police, and uh, certainly they're they're uh, monitoring and uh, making sure that they stay on top of those issues all the time. Uh, there are gang related incidences, and they tend to remain so, so that you know innocent bystanders don't become uh, you know victims in this and. And so, uh, you know, they, not that we want to encourage gunplay, but, uh, you know, if they, uh, if they do it uh, amongst themselves and they're, they're all up for it, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to support it, but, you know, I can understand how it, uh, how it has happened in the past. But the police are on top of that. They know where the gangs are. They know who the, the gang members are. They, uh, they monitor. They continue to oversee, uh, you know, their behaviors and, uh, and, and prevent any kind of negative uh, outcomes as much as humanly possible. Can police be everywhere? Unfortunately, they can't. And so we would encourage, you know, members in our community, when they see people that are having a mental health crisis or someone speaks of, you know, picking, wanting to pick up a gun and doing some harm to someone, that they report it to someone, you know, whether it's the police or, you know, some uh, uh, some other, uh, you know, mental health, uh, you know, uh, providers or, uh, you know, someone in the school system, if it's a child in, the, in high school or in grade school, uh, report it to someone so that uh, it can be known and uh, some some tracking can be done and some assistance can be provided to uh, to help that individual with some of the issues that they're dealing with. So our you know the eyes and ears in the community are going to matter. Uh, you know we only have uh, you know 700 800 police officers and we have 450 thousand people. So we uh, we cannot track and monitor all those people. 
uh, we would ask, uh, you know, the people in, their, in our broader community that if they hear something that they don't think is great or is off or is potentially harmful, that they notify someone and uh, get the appropriate help. Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with us. Mayor for the City of Hamilton. Mayor, again, thanks so much for the time and uh, nice touch on the sign. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the sign, um, as much as it was a, a great thing to put in place, it has, uh, has some great uses and, uh, you know, certainly to sympathize with uh, other communities uh, at events like this is uh, is very helpful and we're happy to do that. It's amazing that something that was designed for the city of Hamilton is now being appreciated by those in another city. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Good work. I'm delighted. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We heard lots, uh, I, I guess it's been in, in place for uh, over a year now, for a while now. Um, we'll get that information and correct it on that moments, in moments. Uh, but we've, we heard, of course, when interest rates were at their extreme lowest levels, that, of course, uh, the prices of how homes and houses were going through the roof. Everybody was buying, uh, blah, 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 blah. The prices of homes started to increase. The government felt the need to slow it all down and added a stress test in order to qualify for the loan to buy your home. You had to qualify at a higher rate than what the posted rate was. According to a report the stress test disqualifies eight or disqualified 18 percent of canadian home buyers to talk more about all of this paul taylor is with us mortgage professionals canada and is with us now paul thanks for the time much appreciated hey no problem thanks for the opportunity. what is mortgage professionals canada we're a national association that is made up uh, predominantly of mortgage brokers all across the canada uh, we also have mortgage lenders and mortgage insurers as part of our membership we're a not-for-profit association, though, and we do our best really to uh, present as much as possible the views and opinions of mortgage brokers and to try to represent the plight of the home buyers that would use a broker through to government. So when did this start? When did you notice this start to decline? I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. <clears throat> There's actually been a bit of a rolling cumulative effect of a few things. Um, so I'll, I'll spend just a minute and set a bit of context and... Yep, go ahead. Try not to get overly uh, technical. So there's a couple of stress tests in place now. Uh, The first one was actually introduced initially in October of 2016, and it was only for folks that needed an insured mortgage. And that generally is the first-time buyer. So anybody that has less than 20% down payment, most of your listeners will probably know, have to buy mortgage insurance. Mm -hmm. Well, those folks originally were the only ones that had to qualify at a higher interest rate if you had greater than a 20% down payment, you still qualified at the contract rate that you were negotiating. Uh, As of January this year, it's sort of the rest of the market of the uninsured loans now that are also subject to a stress test. So since the beginning of the year, now everybody that's applying for a mortgage has to qualify at an artificially uh, higher rate than the mortgage is actually going to be issued. Obviously, and you're not in the government, but why the need to, you can certainly see it around first-time buyers. Why extend that to everyone, do you think, in your opinion? Uh, I'll try and be brief. The initial stress test for the folks with insured mortgages is, was actually to try to reduce the size of the insured mortgage uh, liability, mm-hmm. because those are all backstopped by Government of Canada there is technically a contingent liability that taxpayers are covering. And so uh, as of October 2016, somewhere around $700 billion worth of outstanding loans insured 
today. Because the test has reduced that, we're just a little under 500 billion, but that's a, a level that government, I think, feels a little more comfortable with. Because that test was originally just for insured mortgages, a lot of people found a way to get to that magical 20% down payment number. Hmm. And so following the first test, the number of mortgages issued at exactly 20% down increased quite dramatically. Right. So now the, the regulator of the um, federally regulated banks, or OSFI, Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, was taking a look at mortgage portfolios in general and could see that the average loan-to-value was starting to increase, and that actually makes those portfolios riskier. So the implementation of the second stress test was actually to try to bring back more equilibrium between right. insured and uninsured right. mortgage market risk, if you will. Like squeezing one end of the toothpaste tube, it comes out the other end. <laughs> you got it. Right. Exactly. So um, as we've had a bit of time to digest this, and, and, and maybe it'll take more time, are stress helping or hurting the economy? I mean, is this crushing dreams or protecting your is it or is it crushing your dreams or protecting your investment uh, so very very interesting way to phrase that um i don't envy the federal government the challenge they have a particular set of tools with monetary policy that affects the nation all at once um, i think a reduction in transactions which is what we've seen across the country and a little bit of a cooling of excitement were probably very welcome changes in Toronto and Vancouver, but they're really not great news if you're in one of the areas of the country that was not already firing economically on all cylinders. So the Prairie Provinces and Atlantic have actually seen real reductions in home values there now, and we're concerned that we're going to start to see some of those in our more traditionally economically vibrant areas. Um, even though we may have seen some reports lately that said the average house price in Toronto has started to increase again. Yeah. It doesn't really talk about the difference in transaction volumes. So there's still greatly reduced listing and sales activity taking place from what was happening last year or the year before. I think we're actually somewhere around 2013 numbers for overall transactions, and the populations have increased you know, much greater than that. So let me let me play devil's advocate here, Paul. Where would prices be if the government hadn't stepped in and done this? Because we remember it was getting out of control. Uh, so do we just stand back and let the free market take care of itself? It will correct itself? Or do you have to step in? So before the stress test was introduced, actually, at both the Ontario and the B.C. governments had taken action through their own provincial legislation to try to take some of the heat off those markets. There's been uh, implementation of foreign buyers taxes, land transfer taxes in some areas, and that actually was already doing the job of trying to take the edge off. I think the marketplace was almost self-correcting already before the implementation of this stress test in January. But it, it's really important to recognize the stress test was not introduced by the federal government to do anything at all to cool the marketplace. It really was more about managing risk within right. the financial institution. Right. It's covering the rear end in case they had to pay out. Mm-hmm. Right. It also keeps banks vibrant. I mean, it, on, on the flip side of the argument, everybody that's listening probably has some money in a bank. 
So it's really important to make sure that the financial institutions that you're banking with are vibrant mm-hmm. so that your deposit money is safeguarded as well. Had they had not implemented this, there was chat, uh, chatter of how the prices were increasing so much per year that within a couple of years, housing would not be even affordable for the majority of people. Um, sure. and, and there was definitely a bubble there. Would that have eventually burst, in your, in your opinion, and, and leveled off or corrected itself? Or would it just have kept going? Uh, I think it did, actually. We, we watched that happen. There was definitely a period of uh, excitement, end of 16, beginning of 17. Um, and when we take a look, we have a chief economist whose name is Will Dunning. He does a lot of this uh, analytic work for us. He, he does studies all the time on sales to new listings ratios, and it basically tracks the number of homes purchased versus the number of available homes to purchase. And so it's a very simple supply and demand. If inventory is high, prices should stay low. When inventory gets low, there's more competition, so prices increase. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of a dislocation between sales to new listings ratios that caused a greater increase in prices than should really have been warranted towards the end of 16 and beginning of 17. But the market seemed to sort of start to correct itself at the end of 17 anyway, even before these stress tests were introduced. So I think the fundamentals of the marketplace are actually still, from a supply and demand perspective, quite strong. But there's definitely a reduction in activity because there's just an awful lot of people now the stress test effectively reduced people's borrowing power. So it disqualifies right. an awful lot of first-time buyers from getting the first foot on that first rung. And there's a lot of folks, young middle-class families, I'm guessing, that are in their starter home who would traditionally now be looking for the second home. They're probably just thinking about having a family. They need an the extra bedroom. Right. But they're not able to move up to that next home now because their borrowing power has been reduced. And so that sort of activity reduction is what's causing the economic transaction reduction across the country. Uh, That sort of answers my next question. At the end of all of this, Paul, people are still buying. They're just buying less house. So what's the problem if I play devil's advocate? Well, there's an awful lot of problems there. There's only so many of those homes at the bottom. The, The difference in quality of life for a young family when you take a 20% difference in values, let's say, you're in Hamilton, so average home price might be somewhere between four fifty and 600000 uh, It's even higher probably in the mountain. If you take 20% off that, though, you, you either have to commute an hour to yeah. get into mm-hmm. town from maybe Grimsby or uh, even somewhere up closer to Niagara, um, or you're just buying something that is really not comfortable for the size of the family you're in. So or you're just forced to rent. There's an awful lot of people who will be continuing to rent rather than actually have the ability to build equity for themselves. So the the other sort of long-term consequence of this is if we create a generation of renters, uh, which is really easy to see, um, 10 years from now, the personal net worth of an awful lot of Canadians is going to be worse off than it otherwise would have been. You bring, up a, you bring up a very interesting point because lots of people here will compare our lives to those in Europe and say, you know, they're doing it right, they're doing this, they're doing that. And, you know, if you travel to Europe, the majority, well, I shouldn't say majority, it depends where you are, but an awful lot of people, certainly compared to, say, North America, rent as opposed to own. Yes. 
So really, a fair comparison, and 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 again, is that necessarily better? Especially well, when you I talked think, about building equity with you know within your estate. Sure, um, there's an awful lot of differences uh, from the UK originally, and so even just population density in some of those arenas is is worth talking about. We have more land in Canada than anywhere else. I think where the second largest nation only to Russia and the country's empty. We have 30 some odd million people here. I've, I've thought the same thing. Why the hell are we stacking everybody up like cordwood all within 10 miles of the lakeshore? It's beyond me, but that's, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, I'm on your side on this. I'm trying to be neutral. Is this all to blame on low interest rates? Certainly. So people manage their money on a cash flow basis. Everybody does this. You get paid biweekly, and you figure out what your budget is depending upon how you can make it from this paycheck to the next. And when you're figuring out whether you're renting or buying, it's within that parameter that you're making that calculation. Low interest rates certainly make it much easier to afford more home. And that's probably been the largest contributor to the price escalations we've seen across the last number of years. Um, But homes have still been actually quite affordable and people keep talking about this bubble in canada but as long as the interest rates were low the interest carrying costs on those homes has been has been very affordable and because home values have been what they are people have amassed quite a lot of wealth through equity growth over that time so uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword it can be really difficult in early years but the benefits of home ownership are tremendous over time um, and it certainly has helped a lot of people in early days as those interest rates started to fall, get onto a ladder and really afford a property that they wanted to live in. We've certainly uh, heard the rumors for years now before this became the norm uh, that interest rates are going up. Uh, the Bank of Canada saying that there will be at least one more this year, possibly two. Uh, are we heading for a train wreck with all of this? Considering, you know, my goodness, we're paying interest rates that are lower than what my parents did back in the 1960s. For sure. I think um, small increases in interest rates are actually are more impactful when interest rates are low. Uh, it's just a, a pretty basic function of math. A 1% increase on what is a 2% interest rate is a 50% increase in the payment carrying cost. Exactly. Right when it's one percent loaded on top of ten percent, as a percentage of the whole, it's much has less impact. Um, I'm a little concerned that I know we seem to be doing quite well from an employment standpoint. Economy seems to be ticking along quite well, um, and to a degree, we're a little stuck, depending on what's going on in the U.S. If the Fed keeps raising interest rates, if we don't want the loony to plummet, we to a degree have to be mindful of trying to keep our interest rates somewhat close to what's happening stateside. But if we continue to increase them, we are increasing the interest carrying costs on outstanding debt for Canadians. And we do still have quite a lot of Canadians out there that are in an awful lot of um, debt. I think we're somewhere around 167 percent Mm-hmm. debt to income ratio on average now, which is down from a peak of 172. So we're moving in the right direction. But it, every time those interest rates increase, it, it does add additional financial burden on that biweekly paycheck that people are seeing. So we need to be very cognizant. Economies only work when people are spending money. And when they don't have some funds free to go for a drink on the weekend or to the restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, local businesses start to hurt then. And then you create this self-fulfilling 
um, sort of cyclical uh, recessionary pocket areas in the country. So we, we, sh- we do need to be mindful of it. I know they know what they're doing. They spend a lot of time crunching data, but we, we do need to keep an eye on it for sure. Now that we are starting to see interest rates climb here, and as you mentioned, uh, in, in step with those in the United States, is that a reason to relax these restrictions? Well, I, I would suggest that we probably need to reduce the stress test for the sake of a, a couple of different reasons. The, the transactions in real estate have fallen dramatically, and there's an awful lot of people within Canada that make a living in and around real estate as an industry. So whether that be realtors, a lot of mortgage brokers within our community, of course, uh, home appraisers, contractors, folks that do home improvements. So with reduced transactions, there's less cash flowing through those industries, and that detrimentally impacts our GDP long-term as well. Um, Because we are starting to see reductions in home values, though, in lots of areas of the country now, because uh, fewer people can afford homes, that also has um, potential recessionary pocket creation power as well. Because when people's homes start to lose value, people get nervous about their long-term financial wealth, wealth being, as you can imagine. They start to save rather than spend. And then we end up with that same sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, I'm not doing very well. The economy seems to not be treating me well. Mm. People stop spending. Businesses also suffer. It's it's just um, pro-cyclicality, they call it. it. It fulfills its own expectations. Paul Taylor has been with us, Mortgage uh, Mortgage Professionals Canada, and, of course, an organization that represents uh, mortgage brokers uh, across the country. Paul, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much for the opportunity today. Have a great one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have certainly talked at length uh, on this radio show in regard to uh, the trials and tribulations heading uh, going on south of the border with President U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, uh, and of course his ongoing battle with the media and fake news, and and you know it it goes on and goes on and goes on, and 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 really his uh, not only attack on the media but trying to convince all of you out there that just because you're hearing something doesn't necessarily mean it's true. However, when the person that's saying that is doing most of the lying, it really becomes confusing. Uh, the White House press corps has known uh, as has shown some incredible unity after a reporter was barred from an event in the Rose Garden. The Trump administration barred CNN's Caitlin Collins from attending an event setting, saying that she was asking uh, inappropriate questions and as a result was banned or barred from this event. As a result, the rest of the press have have rallied around her, even Fox News issuing a statement that says, we stand in strong solidarity with CNN for the right to full access to our uh, for our journalists as part of a free and unfettered press. To talk more about all of this, joining is joining us is Brian J. Karam, uh, executive editor, Senate. Sorry, Brian J. Karam, uh, executive director, Senate newspapers, political analyst for CNN, and is with us now. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. Sure. How big a deal is this? Is this going to resonate with American citizens? Uh, (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Uh, And God only knows. It resonates with us. Um, 
And I think it resonates with those who uh, care about what's going on. And hopefully that's a majority of people. I mean, this has been an ongoing battle that we've faced since this man has come into office. Um, Caitlin isn't the first one. She's a young reporter from CNN. She's very good at what she does. Um, she certainly had a right to be where uh, she wanted to be and, and ask the questions that she wanted to ask. But uh, I can, myself, I've been physically accosted by uh, members of the uh, uh, staff of the White House. I've been, uh, I was with Jim Acosta one day, also from CNN, uh, standing in the uh, Rose Garden asking questions. And I had a, a young wrangler come up to me and tell me I was being rude and to shut up. And I told her, don't tell me how to do my job and back off. Um, we've been kept, we've been lied to. We have been uh, delayed. I mean, we, we routinely are treated very rudely by the White House. They'll call, you know, uh, uh, briefings for 2 o'clock, not show up sometimes till an hour and a half later. 25 minutes afterwards, I always set my clock, and 25 minutes after they're supposed to go there, I'm the guy that goes back into the White House and says, hey, get out there. You know, we're waiting for you. They routinely tell us stuff like, well, we're busy. We have things to do. Just go wait, as if we don't have anything better to do except sit in a a room and wait. I mean, it's ongoing, and uh, this is just the latest in the events. I mean, as I said, there have been people that have been manhandled, lied to, uh, cursed at. It's, It's not a very pretty situation. Will this be a story, another story that everyone forgets in 24 hours just because there's so many and something else will happen? I think we've already forgotten it. Um, <laughs> honestly, I mean, there's so much going on on any day with this administration, and there's so much to chase down that no story has uh, a half-life of more than a day or two. I mean, the Putin story in Helsinki lasted longer than any in People have pretty much forgotten that. The, the people south of the border of the United States and, and Mexico and, and Central America, the immigrants, that story has nearly been forgotten. I can go over a list of stories that just don't seem to have uh, much shelf life because a fresh atrocity shows itself and we end up having to fight it or, or deal with a new scandal almost every day. Uh, the media, obviously, a pretty competitive business. Uh, you're in there. You're on the front lines. What does it say when all of the press comes together like this, and even Fox News saying this isn't right? Well, we've done that before with other presidents. Um, I've covered pretty much everybody since Reagan. And on certain issues, we will stand together, and we should stand together. Um, of course it's competitive. Of course it's uh, there's at any given time in a press briefing room, there's 100 people in there trying to get stories, trying to get the questions uh, answered and asked. But the simple fact of the matter is that in in this country we have this thing called the First Amendment, and I I happen to believe in it very strongly. And when the government tries to suppress a voice, everyone suffers, not just the one being suppressed, but everyone. So in this case, it was CNN's Caitlin Collins. Uh, What was she asking? What was she saying that was so inappropriate? I think she was asking, I was not standing there at the time. I believe she was asking about uh, Cohen uh, and some of the ongoing troubles uh, the president is having with his former fixer. But that's no different, I have to tell you, than the question The question she was asking yesterday, the day before, when he came in uh, uh, off of a trip and he came in on Marine One and walked from the helicopter to the residence, on the south lawn of the White House, there were a group of reporters gathered. I was one of them. Caitlin was one of them. 
I was asking the very same questions. She was asking the very same questions. We were all shouting those questions to him as he walked into the residence. I'm not sure who was who it was that accosted um, Caitlin, but we are already on our third or fourth group of young press wranglers in this administration that are dealing with the press, and they do not have the experience, they do not have the wherewithal or the understanding of what it is that we do. So when they accosted, and I was accosted by one who said I was being rude for asking a question. Um, you know, I'm not advocating rudeness, but I'm far more worried about people too disinclined to ask a question. But the fact is that these press wranglers will attack you and because they don't really know what it is our job is or what it is that their job is. And so they're, in many cases, young kids who lack professionalism and experience, and they don't know what it is they're doing. Are reporters treating this president differently because of his demeanor and how he's treating the press? Uh, no. I think we treat uh, presidents, I think we've given them a little bit too much latitude, actually. I mean, he came out and declared us enemies of the people. And everybody in the press corps said, look, the rules have changed, so let's follow the same old rules. We've suffered because we haven't adapted. The fact is that, is that you know, none of us want to be the story. But we all have taken our turn in being the story. I have, uh, Jim has. April Ryan, uh, Jonathan Carl, Caitlin Collins, uh, John Roberts, you name a reporter in that White House press briefing room, and at one point in time we've all been singled out or made the story. We haven't reacted too well to it because we don't want to be the story. We want to cover the story. Unfortunately, we're dealing with a president who has no respect for what we do, and the only way to face a bully is to stand up to the bull. What can you do when uh, the White House kicks one of you out? I mean, what sort of what sort of retaliation do you have? What can you do? Good question, and the answer to that is what we've done. Stand together against it, um, protest against it, make people aware of it, and continue to do our job asking and demanding answers on questions. Where is this going? How how is the press going to react to uh, uh, Sarah Sanders to uh, uh, the president when and try to do business going forward? Well, you know, I don't have a a, a magic ball that tells me where I'm going to. You know, Crystal Ball is going to tell me where it's going. I can only tell you what I will do, and that is, I, I'm not backing down. Um, I was asked this before, I think I was on CNN's Reliable Sources, and they said, uh, you know, Brian, aren't you just uh, being a caricature by forcing yourself out there? Look, the president made us part of this argument. He declared me the enemy of the people. He accuses me of being fake news. I have called him out as a liar. I will continue to call out facts and call, call it as I and so let the chips fall where they may. But I'm not backing down, not for one minute. I'm there to conflict, <laughs> afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and to ask questions for those who don't have a voice. And if he thinks I'm going away, he's got another thing coming. I'm standing right here, and I'm not backing down from a bullet. How successful has Donald Trump been in turning public opinion against the press? With 
certain people, he's been very effective. Those who support him and turn a blind eye to facts and live their life in that echo chamber of their own philosophical cul-de-sac are never going to listen to what we have to say. And they're the ones that are demanding that, you know, a revocation of credentials or demanding that we're, you know, more uh, submissive and show fealty to this president. But I think a growing number of people have had enough of it. And the support I get from emails and, and uh, on my Twitter feed is growing. Uh, that support far outweighs those who are condemning what we do. And I think that will continue to grow as people understand exactly what it is that we're trying to do and exactly what it is that he's trying to do. Uh, you talked about the Putin summit, uh, and, and boy, oh boy, uh, when we all saw that go down, I, I thought for sure this would be a tipping point, but I guess you can say that about in, any incident involving uh, the president, but, you know, misspeaking, uh, and, and as you mentioned, downright lies. Uh, how has this been, how has this managed to just, you know, get get swept under the rug? Uh, how How are people not branding the president, a communist sympathizer? Well, um, I don't think it would be a communist sympathizer. It would be a Russian sympathizer. That being said, and, and you're absolutely correct, I mean, you know, under definition, it isn't, it isn't as communist as it once was, but when you look at the leader, his relation to the KGB and such, uh, good, tell, good luck telling someone in Crimea that. That being said, you know, for, for years, especially people of his generation, post-World War II, anybody that had said anything like Trump has said would be blacklisted. How is that not happening? Well, um, I think it. I think you've seen a. I think it was a tipping point internationally. I don't think he will survive. His reputation will survive that Helsinki uh, summit. Nationally, I think it has been a tipping point with those in Congress and with voters, and we'll see particularly how it goes in the uh, the midterm elections this fall. The Republicans, as long as they believe that they're going to get reelected following this president will blindly do so, you know, like lemons jumping into the sea. But as soon as uh, something happens and panic sets in, then we'll see what happens there as well. But you're absolutely correct in saying that the, the GOP for years was very anti-Russian. You will see that Mitch McConnell and uh, Paul Ryan have both denounced what the president did while still saying they support the president. McConnell is a, very much a hawk against Russia. Uh, the G GOP has been very hawkish on Russia and do not trust Putin, as they should not. Uh, he's a known liar. He is, and uh, it's, it's almost, I, I think it's very accurate to say that Trump is acting like Putin's puppet. And he has diminished the value of the United States worldwide with what he's done. And that's scary, and that's something that will be a long time for us to recover from. One of the reasons I thought this would be a tipping point, Brian, was because in every other scenario, whether he's when he's talking to world leaders, he's always come across as, uh, you know, the strong man, the bully, the, the bull in a china shop. He's running the show. He made the queen wait for 12 minutes, but yet Putin makes him wait for an hour. And to put, you know, and with Putin, instead of appearing like the bully and strong, he's appearing 
feeling very weak, gets called by the UK a poodle, or sorry, and, and a puppet, as you mentioned. So is the tipping point here because instead of being perceived as being strong and the bully, he's being perceived as weak and a puppet? Well, I think the tipping point here with the with many in the GOP is they know exactly what Putin is, and his inability to stand up to Putin uh, brings into question the legitimacy of his government and his stances in the United States that he takes. And the the classic thing that um, Trump has done wrong is he's confused two issues. He does not want to come forward and say that um, Russia hacked into and meddled in our election yeah. because he feels that that diminishes his victory and leads uh, to the argument that there was collusion, where they are actually two different arguments. He could have interfered with our election and, and Trump not be guilty of, of anything nefarious. So when he does that, what he's actually doing is making people think, holy, holy merit, he, he is guilty of collusion. He is obstructing justice. And that's where we're at with with that issue. He's certainly paying a high price with the country's currency for his own personal gain. <laughs> Boy, that's a mouthful. He he has there is I have maintained I have said that this is the tyrant of a pimp. He is only in it for himself. Nothing matters except his own personal gain, his own personal gratification his own personal satisfaction, and he has sacrificed the United States and everything that we stand for to feather his own nest. And I will not back away from believing that. I have said it often in editorials. It's a question I've asked in the press room. I believe that fundamentally is the major problem with this president. All right. uh, Over and above this story, and we thank you so much for your expertise just give us a, a little example. What's it like to be in that room with all the press and, the, and, and of course, the president and such? What's that like? Um, I often say it's like a colonoscopy without benefit of anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's, man. There's no other way to describe it. It is painful. You have to understand, I mean, I've, like I said, I've been covering presidents since Ronald Reagan. I'll be, I was there before them, I'll be there after them. But the inexperience, the unprofessionalism, and the arrogance and ignorance of this White House staff is unnerving. They do not recognize protocol. They do not recognize knowledge. They do not recognize facts. They lie and then lie about the lies. I, honest to God, would not be surprised if on the day they announced the press briefing, They brought out a dancing bear on a unicycle and said, here's who's going to give you the briefing today. Hmm. Ryan Karam has been with us, executive editor, (laughs) Sentinel Newspapers, and political analyst at CNN. Brian, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thanks for talking to us. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.